0: You're listening to the Nashville Labrie Conference podcast. In July of 2019, there was a weekend gathering in Nashville with lectures, workshops, conversations, and meals together. The theme of the conference was Being Human in a Fragmenting World. Each episode of this podcast is one of the lectures or workshops from that conference. In order to receive email updates about the podcast, including lecture handouts, articles, and books referenced in the lecture, Please subscribe for updates at NashvilleLabrieConference.com. This episode features Dave Friedrich and his lecture, "The Arc of Speech." Dave is one of the workers at the Southborough branch of Labrie, and previously worked at the branch in Switzerland.
1: you've noticed how um, how much people don't talk with each other now, <laughs> even when they're with each other. So, yeah, a family is out for a walk, maybe, I've seen this quite a bit, or maybe friends are at a restaurant, you've seen this too, and everybody's with each other, but not talking with each other, because somebody, or maybe everybody, is on their phone, right? This is called fubbing, has everybody heard this term? It's pretty popular now. Bubbing is when you snub someone, you ignore someone, to look at your phone, right, and there's a lot of fubbing going on. <laughs> Maybe even now, some of you, you know, yeah, i ready. In <laughs> case things get boring, I know where to go. Um, it happens all the time. I came across this image that said, 92% of repeat fubbers go on to become politicians.
2: <laughs> of course,
1: it's always easy to jab the politicians, but it might be referring to all these politicians who've been caught fubbing caught on their phones during important political meetings, and uh, one of the more famous ones was John McCain, and he was caught, if you remember this, in, in 2013, playing online poker during a Senate meeting, <laughs> and he, he made light of it, and he acknowledged it, and it was pretty funny, but that happens, that's happening a lot, not just in politics, but talking about politics, it's, um, when it comes to us discussing with each other uh, politics or different positions, and speaking with someone who's from a different political position, it just seems that we are very unable to have a good conversation, to actually listen to each other, and maybe learn from each other, be challenged by each other. It's, the political polarization is uh, is is pretty extreme right now. But Fubbing and political polarization, these are just two examples of a bigger problem that we're all part of is that we're losing the ability to converse. Uh, this, is, this is what's happening, I think. So maybe you heard about the, the UN report that came up recently by these um, ecological scientists that were highlighting years of research on the current ecological crisis we're in and how I think it's 25% of species on the planet are in danger of extinction. So we're of course in a serious problem. But other scientists, social scientists like Sherry Turkle from MIT have noticed something else that's becoming extinct in the human realm, and that's the art of conversation. And an essential art that's essential for human life and flourishing, and it needs therefore to be rescued and protected, and we need to make room for this in our lives. And that's her book, Reclaiming Conversation. It's worth a read. It was on the book table, I think all the copies have been sold. And anybody buy it in here? It's um it's a really it's a worth read. It's worth reading. Because yeah, conversation it's not just some optional extra in life. It? It's, uh, it's essential for human life and, and flourishing because we were made for conversation. As someone just mentioned in the back row uh, we were made in the image of God and we were made to reflect him in his ways. and he is a God who talks and he's been talking amongst the persons of the Trinity for a lot longer than we have and we were made to do this, we were made to connect with words, which is why you know when you've had just that really good conversation, it can be so invigorating you can just feel new life has come into your veins um, a, new, a new urge to live and live differently maybe and we, can, and we know when it's missing, the pain of that and in Jews, it's the pain of loneliness which is so pervasive I think because conversation real conversation, I'm not talking here just about texting because um, many times you, you talk to somebody and they talk about this conversation they've had with their mother that went on you know, it was this really deep conversation. And it was all through texting, And uh, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when you sit down and you're face-to-face with somebody. And you're looking at the nuances of their expressions and their body language and your presence. That's what I'm talking about. And, And when that's missing, all the good things that come with that,
3: too, go missing.
1: And the things like creative ideas and inspiration you never would have had just on your own. You start talking with somebody and then something pops in your head that you've been looking into and and it sets you off on a new direction you never could have anticipated. Or, of course, yeah, a new friendship might happen or a new romance or a a deeper friendship or a deeper romance or just just the joy of connecting with another person through words. Because we're made for this. Has anyone heard of this book, uh, Crucial Conversations? Tools for Talking When Stakes Are High. Excellent book. It's a New York Times bestseller, and the authors have this to say. It's in your handout. Our research has shown that strong relationships, careers, organizations, and communities all draw from the same source of power, the ability to talk openly about high-stakes, emotional, controversial topics i'm from canada those are usually the topics we stay clear of (laughs) we know the other person's on uh, the other part other side of the political spectrum the weather what do you think about the weather um but their research and it's yeah maybe it's just obvious that companies communities relationships rise or fall based on how we converse or don't converse Um, Really, they're trying to answer the question, is it possible to speak the truth in love? And their answer is yes. And they they give a lot of practical help on how to do that. I I really recommend it. Because it's hard to do this, I think. We need help. We need practical help. And because there's so much that takes us away from this, so many distractions, like we just mentioned earlier, the, the distractions on our phones. There's... There's a million things there to take us away, forever away, from the people we're actually with, and to talk to them. There's there's our inability to endure just a little boredom. That's usually part of every conversation. We're ready to just relieve ourselves of that. And so it's hard. It's hard to talk to somebody and it looks like they're looking at you like a screen. And their minds are, or their eyes are darting everywhere. They're ready to swipe you away <laughs> at a moment's notice unless you're wowing them with something. It's really hard to have a good conversation when you're treated like that. And then there's just the, the crazy busyness of our lives, right? We just don't have time to stop and talk. And that's what I've heard from a lot of people who've been to LaBrie and they leave and they just try to have meaningful conversations and they realize, man, no one's got time for this. It's really hard to make space and time for this and find people who want that. And yet people do. Um, But yeah, the art of conversation, it's in danger of being lost at sea. So it needs to be rescued. It needs an ark. To get to our title, or a shelter from the storm, and that's a, in one way a way to describe what we try to offer at Labrie: an ark, a shelter for conversation, among other things. Labrie, if you don't know, means the shelter in French, and it's really meant to be a, a shelter, hopefully for a time, from the pressures, the craziness, the noise of our age and a shelter among other things to talk to have conversations whether it's while we're working or around the table or one-on-one tutorials that we have and uh so yeah we try to offer a reasonably safe place uh, where people can ask honest questions any question and hear honest answers or at least honest responses because sometimes we Don't have answers but at lunch for example you've heard this anybody can ask any question Uh, we have this freedom nothing is taboo as long as it's honest and but just one question and for one hour that we all talk about (laughs) that's a lot harder than you think (laughs) and to facilitate that it gets messy it gets chaotic it doesn't always resolve and uh, but it's exciting you never know what's coming and you never know what somebody's going to say. And that can be hard, but that can be really rewarding. It's actually one of my favorite parts of livery. I was, I was sad that we can't really do that here. It's a little too noisy to, to, have, to have that happen at these tables. But it is one of my favorite parts. And I think that what some people have tried to do when they've left livery, that's one of the practices they try to incorporate. And then they realize how hard it is to make that happen. So maybe we can talk about more in, in the discussion part. But yeah, we try to offer this place where people can have meaningful conversations. We try to make a space and a place for this, to talk about life, to talk about the Christian life, to talk about reality, God's reality, that hopefully lead to new life, and new life with God and each other and all creation. And that's what LaGrie, how it started really, back over 60 years ago is when the, the Shapers opened up their home to anybody who God brought to them. And that's still the same way today. There's, you have to write an email now. Some people <laughs> think that's like, you know, if you have to write it the right way to come, but no. And you just have to write an email and sign it, and you can come. And we, we, pray, we still pray for God to bring the people of his choosing, and when they come, we welcome them, and we try to listen to them and pay attention to what they say and offer the what we know whatever it is we know or admit what we don't know. And yeah, we haven't we haven't perfected this. There's a strong emphasis at Libris that we live in the shadow of the fall. It's a great actual lecture by DeKais. Um but that doesn't change when you become a Christian. We still like the, if you were at the the workshop I did, we still sing a broken hallelujah. It's never a perfect one in this age. So we mess up. We still learn. We're learning how to do this. We try to learn from those who've gone before us, people like Dick and Marty, um, of that generation. We try to learn from people in our own tradition or people from outside our tradition, whether they're Christian or not. And for myself, one of those others is poet, novelist, theologian, Jean-Louis Chrétien. He's also one of France's leading philosophers. Uh, who became a Christian, believe it or not, by reading French philosophy. I didn't know that was possible, um, but it's possible. (laughs) He's part of what's been called the theological turn in phenomenology. If you're not into philosophy, don't worry about this, but um, he's really into the call and response. So the, um, what was the book that Rob was mentioning? That we were made to respond. um, Homo Respondens. That's very much what he's about. He thinks that the basic structure of reality is call and response, especially God's call and our response. So he's someone to, worth reading. He's very poetic, but he's very deep. It's not an easy read, so I don't necessarily recommend reading his book. <laughs> there's other books I'll recommend to you, but there's a few quotes here that I find really helpful.
3: Is it, it's English? He has English translations?
1: These are in, Not all of his work has been translated. I have almost every book of his that's been translated. He's written a ton. Unfortunately, none of his poetry has been translated, but his, his prose is very poetic, anyway. He loves the poets. Um, but uh, yeah, if you read the blurb, I think this is on your handouts as well. You read this. How far does hospitality go? How far can it go? What can we welcome and gather in, and how? Those are just questions to live with. We're not going to solve these. We can get some clues here today. But hospitality is, though, he says, first and foremost, the hospitality that we give each other. exchanging words and silences, glances and voices. So those are the opening words of his book, "The Ark of Speech," from which this gets its name as this lecture, this workshop. I actually struggled with whether to call it the Ark of Speech or a shelter for conversation. I'll let you decide what you think it should have been called. But, but the Ark, as in Noah's Ark, in case you were wondering. So this shelter that welcomed and gathered in Noah's family and uh, all, the, all the animals, every kind of animal that was protected, sheltered from the flood. So the flood being God's judgment and... The ark being God's hospitality, where really all of creation is represented here, in this little boat, and preserved. So the ark is God's hospitality for people and for animals. And this hospitality is needed again for animals as the the ecological crisis highlights to us. And Ashley Kretchen gets into that somewhat in this book. Well, we don't have time for that. So we're just going to focus on hospitality towards humans when it comes to conversation, especially. So providing, though, this, um, this ark, yeah, there's more copies down here, if, nobody, if somebody doesn't have one, just outlines the, the lecture. But this ark, this shelter thing, is something that God does if you pay attention to Scripture, the story of Scripture. It's the kind of thing he does, and it's the kind of thing he wants us to do as those who are made in his image, those who are meant to reflect him and his ways in our humanity in limited human ways. But that's basically what we're doing. So, for example, he gives this ark from the, sh- from the flood, a shelter from the flood, but more than that, he gives himself in the Old Testament as a shelter. So in Isaiah 25, it says this, towards God, it says, You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. And if you read the Psalms, this this image is repeated over and over. God is our refuge. He is our shelter. He is the ultimate ark for us. He is the ultimate for us and that's why I love Psalm 2 blessed are those who take refuge in him or Psalm 38 goes a little further taste and see that the Lord is good blessed is the one who takes refuge in him I love this that God makes a space, makes room for us within himself take refuge in him Not just under him, but in him. So, in the Old Testament, God provides an ark. He even provides himself as a shelter. But in the New Testament, he offers us his son as our shelter. So, Jesus is the new ark for the new creation. It's helpful to imagine that. So, you have Noah, you have the animal and the human world all represented and preserved on this tiny wooden ark bobbing on the chaos of the seas, right? And then think of Jesus, in whom God saves the world through this little wooden cross planted on the earth. So he, he's both the one through whom God judges the sin of the world and the one through whom we are sheltered from the storm at the same time. So he fulfills the story of Noah. And in this ark, all are welcome. <laughs> Not just one family and representatives of each animal, but anybody, everybody who is burdened and laden. "Come to me," he says, "and I will give you refresh. I will give you rest and refreshment. That's the ultimate divine hospitality we're to look to to imitate. So yeah, the ark is the kind of thing God does, it's His idea, but it's the kind of thing He's asking us to do for each other. Oh, I love this in Isaiah 58, where God says to Israel, Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke, is it to not share your food with the hungry, and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? I think that's what, that's what Christians were known for. Early on. That's what marked them off. And then at a certain point in history, we handed over hospitality to the hospitality industry, to hospitals and hotels. That's what we were known for. And it's time to reclaim it in in the ways that we can. It doesn't have to be big and massive. It can just be in our own homes, in our own particular ways. But this is what the New Testament calls hospitality. Practicing hospitality. Doing it, we're told, in Peter, 1 Peter, without grumbling. Super hard. Doing it to strangers. To us, the stranger is the enemy. But we're to practice hospitality to the stranger, not just to see them as a scary enemy, but someone to love and take in, even if there's risk. And to offer hospitality it's really is to welcome someone. It's to make room for someone in your space, whatever that might be. To make room for them and their words for a time, for a season. To to offer them an ark, a shelter, a safe place, uh, and to offer them what's needed for life for a time, whether that's food or whether that's conversation, because that's one of the essentials of life. So yeah, the ark, this was God's idea but Noah had to build it. Because <laughs> God is God with us, right? He's not God without us. He doesn't intend to do anything without us. He calls us to participate. So an Ark of Hospitality, a shelter for conversation is something we have to build too, as well. Not as a, a boat, um, but as this space between us. We create a type of space between us that has the atmosphere of an art you can feel, the atmosphere of a shelter, you can sense there's a, a kind of protection going on, a safety in this space, and so we don't build it with hammer and hands and nails, we build it with our mouths and how we use our words, how we listen, how we look at each other. So outside this space, that's the, sh- that's the storm. That's the noise, which there's a lot of. I can't stand it. <laughs> I try to go to a coffee shop to have a quiet space to, to read or talk, and it's just music blaring <laughs> so many times. Turn down the dial um, so we can have a, a chance to actually talk or think. So that inside this space is sheltered, some kind of safety that people can feel. So this is, if you're looking at the sheets, we're on side number two, so we're about halfway. So under safe, I put safe in brackets, we're going to have to talk about this as it was mentioned um, the book, uh, The Coddling of, American Mind, of the American Mind by Jonathan Haidt, we'll get into a little bit later on, but we have to think, nothing's totally safe, we can't provide that, we can't promise that, but we can provide a reasonably safe place safe enough for someone to share, to know it's okay. It's safe enough to share my joys, my burdens. It's safe enough to, to share my perspective, even if it might be different than yours. You know? Safe enough maybe even to debate, to sharpen each other. That's kind of what we need. And because people don't typically share honestly from the heart if they don't feel that safety to some degree, and to something Crucial Conversations highlights. When we feel threatened, adrenaline kicks in along with the fight-flight response. So depending on our personality, we typically respond with one or the other. And so if we're in the, the flight, we go silent. We're trying to, in a sense, disappear when we feel the threat. But if we're in the fighting mode, we're aggressive we're, uh, we're going to fight because if we don't feel protected then we try to protect ourselves with either that disappearing silence or that aggressive violence sometimes and you know, that can happen for different reasons and this can happen when there's no room for disagreement there's room for only one kind of personality or perspective or language and uh, whether that's so-called liberal or conservative or moderate or whatever. People don't feel safe when it's just overly critical, too, right? When um, there's no room for mistakes, and there's just a real lack of generosity. And there's a lot of lack of generosity going around. When people are just listening for triggers, for the slightest mistake to pounce on. And we know somebody who's teaching at um, a big university in Boston, and that he went through a huge, terrible year because of one little thing he said that shouldn't have been anything. But he went through a whole year of turmoil thinking he was going to get fired um, for one little mishap. So that's, that's not an atmosphere for real dialogue and honest sharing, good conversation. And so yeah, in talking about a safe place we do need to recognize therefore the difference between feeling unsafe which Rob was touching on and actually being unsafe that's a real important distinction because sometimes because of our story we might feel threatened when in fact there's no real threat going on and so when that happens we need to learn how to not be controlled by that feeling or to control others Uh, By that feeling, but to to learn how to let those kind of feelings come and go like a wave, and realize something sometimes that's all they are—it's a wave that comes and goes, and it's not this person at all. It's not their issue; it's my issue. And so, like for me, I'm a peacemaker. So if you know the enneagram number
2: nine, (laughs) so
1: fear, of course, confrontation. And sometimes it can feel like a confrontation means I'm going to die. <laughs>
2: That's literally
1: how it feels, so I want to avoid it, you know? a lot. And sometimes I do. But sometimes I don't. Sometimes I don't trust my feelings, and I enter it anyway, and I trust God in fact, to bring something good out of what feels like death. And I realize, wait, I came out the other side. <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> and something good came out of this. I can do this again. You know, it's learning those kinds of things. So we need to take our own responsibility in this for not overreacting to what people say. Uh, but we also just need to take our own responsibility for promoting a hospitable, generous atmosphere in this space between us. To, to make it clear we are for this person whether or not we're going to agree with them or not. And... I think that happens for me, that the most helpful thing is to, to treat this person as a person of incredible value, no matter what they're going to say, or what they do, where they're at. I know they're made in the image of God, and that gives them incredible value. I know there's someone for whom Christ died. And with that, I have all the reason in the world to welcome them and to listen to them and to pay attention to their words and what they're saying. No matter what their politics or their philosophy, whether they're a banker or a janitor or a sinner or a saint, I can listen to them and value them. And I think when we do that, when we come at people with that perspective, they know they're safe enough to to start talking and to share from the heart even. And when that happens, we need to be ready for what to listen for. And that brings us to what Gretchen calls the first hospitality, the listening. So, this is on your sheets again. The first hospitality is nothing other than listening. It's the hospitality that we grant to others with our body and our soul. Even out on the streets and on the roadside, when we would not be able to offer a roof or warmth or food, and it is at any instant that this, this hospitality can be granted. You just get that quote. <laughs> that would be worth it to come today. This, that is a true statement. So yeah, the first hospitality is to create this safe place where people are welcomed and heard. Where their, their words are valued and listened to. And this can be created in any, this kind of space can be created in any place. A place like Brie, a place like here, like your own home, or a coffee shop, or out on the streets. And this makes me think about my time as a paramedic and a firefighter. And when someone's having a medical emergency, say they've been involved in a car accident, and of course what they need uh, because they have bodies that matter, is medical attention, and that's what we give them. That's what we're trained for. But they also need another kind of attention, conversational attention. You realize they don't. You don't get enough training in this when you train to be a firefighter or a paramedic. But it's one of the more important parts. <laughs> and they need to tell somebody what happened and where it hurts. You know, just like when you're a kid, <laughs> you need to tell mommy. What happened and where it hurts? Well, that doesn't ever go away. We might pretend we don't need to do that. But we still need to do that. We still need to do that. People need to be heard. They need someone to come in and say, I'm here and I'm listening. I'm ready to help. And as firefighters, we say, you know, well, this scene might be a little dangerous. So let's get into the, uh, the ambulance, the arc of emergencies, <laughs> where we can listen to you a little more and get you the help you need. And what medics and firefighters have found actually is that when that conversational part is done well, with respect, if you make medical mistakes, they don't care that much. <laughs> as long as they're a major one. Um, but if that part is missing, the smallest medical mistake can be turned into a big one. And you can get in big trouble. Uh, because you haven't talked to them, you haven't listened to them as a human being, as they should be. So listen again, because yeah, hospitality is both practical and conversational. So listen to what Cretchen says, this crucial place of listening. This really just follows that, that quote just before this one. So of all other forms of hospitality, it is the precondition that is listening. For bitter is the bread that is eaten without speech, having been exchanged. Heavy and burdensome is the insomnia of the beds in which we sleep, without our weariness having been welcomed and respected." Yeah, we just nailed it. Um, and that really resonates with our work at Labrie. We really feel that. Um, it's really important for us when someone first comes in to say, let's just sit down and talk about why you're here. What's your story? What are, you what are some of your hopes and desires? And that makes all the difference for people. So yeah, before we offer someone some food or practical help or advice, it's always wise to ask a few questions. <laughs> you may assume you know what they need, what their story is, what their desires are, but you probably don't. <laughs> you need to ask that. You need to find out a little bit. We need to be, as James puts it, in chapter 1 to be quick to listen and slow to speak. That's in my heart. So many times when I'm conversing with someone I'm like, what am I doing here? Am I doing the opposite? Yeah, that's usually what we tend to do. We're quick to speak, maybe depending on our personality and slow to listen where we're just flooding people with our words. We're filling the slightest silence It's just noisy chatter. Well, that's not providing the ark. That's not providing a shelter for conversation. That's the flood we need
2: shelter from.
1: That's really hard to keep that in your mind and your heart and practice that. So yeah, this hospitable space is making room for other people's words and silences and strange mannerisms and grammar mistakes. (laughs) Whatever it is that ticks you off, you need to make room for that. Francis Schaeffer, he was known for being someone who listened to people for hours into the night. Many times late into the night. And a former delivery worker, Jerem Bars, has anyone met him or know of him? Yes. Uh, So he heard this, said by Schaeffer, if I have only one hour with somebody, I will spend the first 55 minutes asking questions and finding out what is troubling their heart and mind. And then, in the last five minutes, I will share something of the truth. <laughs> I, yeah, I wish I could do... I don't do that yet. I'm working <laughs> towards getting there. And of course, not every conversation is meant to be like that. You know, some conversations a week are meant to be more 50-50, a real exchange of back and forth. But people were coming to him for answers, and yet, interestingly enough, he just didn't listen for a quick question, and then spent 55 minutes talking at them, but he spent most of his time listening. And I think that's why his writings are the way they are. They have the depth, the authority that they have. You can tell he's been listening to people, to their hearts and their minds. He, he was what call, John Stock called a double listener, if, uh, if you've read some of John Stock's stuff. This person who both listened to God in scripture and in prayer as he listened to people in conversation and culture. And I think there's a passage that really kind of sums that up for me. This is Isaiah 50, verse 4. The sovereign Lord has given me a well instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. See that connection? He had a word for the weary because he listened in the morning to the Lord. He learned how to listen. And then he had something to share, a word for the weary. And I think that's what Schaefer did in practice and as a model for us. And yeah, this is, this is not easy stuff. There's a lot of roadblocks to becoming a good listener, many things that stand in the way. And the biggest roadblock is thinking that we already are, <laughs> that we don't need any help, that we've already arrived. But that's not true. We need help. We need as much as we can get. Uh, and because it's worth it, we need to work at this. Doug Larson, he's the American journalist who once wrote, Wisdom is the reward you get for a lifetime of listening when you'd have preferred to talk. <laughs> and that's true. It's a real self-discipline. To just... There's this guy um, who wrote The Listening Life can't remember his name. It's a book I suggested. It's already been bought, and or all the copies have been bought on the book table. What's it called? Yeah. Nope.
3: It's Hugh something.
1: Yes, Hugh something. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Look, what's that?
1: McHugh. McHugh, yeah. McHugh, h-u-h, yeah. There we go. And he talks about this arrow that he has to force himself to imagine, this arrow that points back to the other person. listen. Listen. They're important. Their words are important. I find I have to do that too, many times, to imagine that arrow. And yeah, at Labrie, we do a lot of listening. We try to. We try to listen to people and to culture. We try to listen to God in scripture and in prayer. And we find that the degree that we actually do that is the degree we grow in wisdom over the years. And that's one of the, the rewards of working at libraries: is hearing so many people's stories. And the wisdom, the, the richness you get, how your life is enriched because of that. I mean, it's burdens, too, that are hard to carry. But yeah, you do this because you realize there's something to learn from this person. There's something that I don't know, that I need to hear. So this brings us to what Gretchen calls listening for the unheard of. So The opposite of the unheard of is the familiar, uh, what we resonate with, what we already know to some degree, what we've experienced. And I think this is one of the blessings, this familiarity is one of the blessings of conversation. I'm not alone. I, I, I share these joys and burdens that you do in sorrows. We share this common humanity and this common creator, and this common creation that's both tragic and beautiful. And that's where we usually start our conversations, you know? This commonality, we try to make connections, right, with what's similar, oh, you're from Ohio, I used to live near Cincinnati, or you know so-and-so, I do, or you love hamburgers, so do I. (laughs) I really do love hamburgers, the way, (laughs) yeah. We can talk about hamburgers later. Um, But that's usually, yeah, where we start, And it's okay to to continue there, but it's not necessarily good to stay there for a good conversation. But that is where you usually stay because it's it's comfortable and it's hard to venture out into something and to hear and listen for something that's not similar to me, that's not similar to my experience or perspective, uh, to someone else's values. There are other stories, parts of their stories I haven't experienced that I need to hear. I find this is one of the harder parts of conversation to listen for these parts that people are dying to tell. Because an algorithm can't hear that. Can't listen to that part. An algorithm can listen to what's true for everybody but not what's specific to you in your story. And I think this happens like when someone's sharing a tragic story. And of course, we should try to empathize and maybe imagine where we have experienced something similar to put ourselves in their shoes. But when we start to say, hey, I've experienced that exact same thing, (laughs) then uh, that means we haven't been listening properly enough. We haven't been listening for those unique, unrepeatable parts of their story that they need to share. They're hoping you're going to listen to. <coughs> or at Brie, it's and maybe this is true for you in other areas, but someone asks a question and before they finish asking it, they're like, oh, I know exactly what they're going to say and ask. I know exactly what they need to hear because it's exactly what I meant when I asked that question and what I needed to hear And it's what everybody else means and needs <coughs> about that question. And I think, again, that's when we've stopped listening. Our hospitality, in a sense, has reached its limits. And uh, when we do that, we haven't been listening for that unheard-of element in their story that's waiting to be told. It means that we only welcome into the shelter the space between us what's similar and familiar, and probably because that's comfortable for us. And so what's different and unique is left out, outside the ark, to perish. Um, its destiny is with the animal that Ham would not let onto the ark. If you know C.S. Lewis's poem, the, the Late Passenger, does anybody know this poem? I wish I could read the whole thing, but basically the, the story of the poem is all these animals are in the ark, all the animals, except one. That's knocking on the door. The door's been shut. And Noah's up top, and he hears this knocking of this one animal. And he says to his sons down below, Open the ark, let that animal in. But Ham says to his brothers, Wait, guys, we already are overworked here. Just think of all the extra work that animal's going to mean for us. We're not opening that door. So he ignores the knock and his father's command and leaves the animal outside the ark to perish. And as they sail off, Noah looks back, and sees the animals Ham has left behind And laments and says And all the world, O Ham May curse the hour when you were born Because of you the ark must sail Without the unicorn
2: <laughs> So yeah, what, what unicorns
1: Are we shutting out Of our conversations, right? The unheard ofs uh, that, yeah, that means more work. Conversations are messy and stinky, like animals. It's hard work. It takes patience to, to listen for that unheard of element. It takes imagination. It takes love and humility. It takes the Holy Spirit to help us to enter that. And it takes saying to yourself, yeah, I have something to learn from this person. Something, something about the human condition, I don't know, but I, that can actually enrich my life too, and my future conversations, because I've listened for that. And I think you can tell people who have done that. A friend of mine once asked me, Dave, don't you get tired of working at Labrie and hearing the same questions about divine sovereignty and human freedom and the problem of evil over and over and over again? <laughs> And sometimes, yeah, it can get hard and challenging. But then I responded with what something an older library worker told me. He said, yeah, they're the same questions, and there's something similar for everybody in need. But it's never exactly the same question. It's always coming from a different person with a different story, different reasons for asking it. And your job, with the help of the Spirit, is to listen for that unheard-of element. And, of course, to offer something that's true for all people, but also something that's helpful for that particular person. That's what's really touching people today, what people are hungry for. Because we're treated as the crowd, but we're really treated as that particular person, as a particular story. And, of course, when you do this, like I mentioned, you get enriched, Um, what you get from that is worth all the effort at the end of the day. So, a shelter for conversation is this reasonably safe place where we're welcomed and listened to as we are in our common humanity and in our particular stories. And hopefully, again, it's not just a monologue, but it's a a real exchange of back and And forthness because that's what makes a conversation a conversation and what makes it a good one. And what can make it even better if we're willing, is to be willing to be challenged in our conversation. I love this proverb. It's a very popular one. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And in the Hebrew, it's actually one person sharpens the face of another. Because it's a a play on words. A face of a tool is the same word for the face of a person. And so, in Proverbs, to sharpen someone's faith is to sharpen their wisdom in the sense of sharpening how they speak and how they look at people and how they listen with their ears. That needs to be sharpened. And I think most of the time that happens in conversations where we're challenged and we challenge each other. So... A safe place needs to be qualified. And I heard this when I was at Swiss Library just uh, this last April, that it's a safe place to be challenged. And I think that protects us from <laughs> what Height, will, Height calls safetyism. Because there's this assumption of there that to be loved is to be affirmed, period. And we need affirmation. We need to affirm each other. But that's not the only expression of love. So the idea is, well, if you love me, you're gonna affirm me and only affirm me. And if you call into question anything I believe or do or desire, you're no longer for me. You are no longer loving me. And I'm out. <laughs> and so then we can go overboard with what we expect a safe place to be. With what Height called safetyism. This obsession with eliminating any and all threats. This overprotection where we expect to be safe, not just from physical harm or from obvious sexual racist attacks or aggression, but safe from anything that would cause me emotional discomfort. Safe from anything that might be a trigger for me might make me feel emotionally unsafe when, in fact, there is no threat to be found. So when we when we expect that kind of safety or demand it from others, we become again another inhospitable hand. You know, only uh, welcoming things that affirm me and leaving out anything that might challenge me. I love this quote by by Emerson. Let me never fall into the vulgar mistake of dreaming that I am being persecuted whenever I am contradicted.
2: <laughs>
1: in, when in the, day, in the end of the day when we do that and we shut that out from conversation, we, we shut out any real, constructive, crucial conversation we could have and all the good that comes from those things. And there's all kinds of conversations. It's not like every conversation needs to be super intense and meaningful. That could be too much. Uh, there's, there's conversations that, you know, we're just shooting the breeze, or I'm just getting directions, or it's just an encouragement, or sharing something. And, and some conversations can be like um, a big, soft, comfy pillow, right? <laughs> just make you feel good. And you need that. You need a bed with big, comfy pillows you can fall asleep to and feel nice and safe um, but sometimes you need to go to the workshop and sharpen things and that's when pillows don't do you any good you know, pillows don't sharpen anything only iron sharpens iron and despite what we've been told we are resilient our faces are like iron and they can be sharpened and they can take some discomfort even though we don't like that uh, but we need that to be sharpened and, uh, and for a good purpose to, to make us more who we're meant to be. just like, Or, or to be healed. Like a heart surgeon who, who has to wound us and cut us before he heals us or she heals us. And that's, that's what words from a true friend can be like at times. Sometimes they can have words that cut us. But they're coming from a place of love in order to heal us, help us, make us better. And even more so with God. I think even the words of Jesus a lot of times to me they first cut me they hurt me I don't like that with how they feel but if I endure that the healing comes that is intended to be coming so safe from all discomfort or safe enough to be heard and listened and to be challenged and changed and, uh, yeah, if we're willing, so every conversation is an opportunity to practice hospitality and to enter this, this challenge, this changing, this sharpening. And to remember that this true self in Christ that we're becoming is a forgiven self. That this is a forgiveness and a grace that goes deeper than all the inadequacies and the failures we feel. And maybe you're feeling right now, because <laughs> I'm laying on you a lot of how conversation Can be, and when that happens, typically we feel overwhelmed and inadequate. And to remind ourselves, well, the grace of God goes deeper and enables us to do these things. And that this takes time and practice. And someone who's encouraged me in this is a mentor of mine when I went to Regent College in Vancouver, which is yeah crazy. All of the people who work at Southborough somehow went to Regent College. We didn't plan that. We went at different times, and we just all happened to work together. Um, but I had a mentor there who's still alive, uh, James Houston, who's the founding principal, who left Oxford in England to be the founding principal of Reading College. And he's now 96, and as sharp as ever, still teaching, still writing, and sharing wisdom because he's a man who spent his life Listening to people. He's had a practice of just reading books and listening to people's hearts and listening to God in scripture and in prayer and in conversation. And yet, yeah, he's one of the most wise people I've ever met. And there's story after story, I read of people going and meeting him and having this, this significant conversation a, a new insight, a new direction to their life, a new revelation about God or themselves. And this was true of me. We used to walk every morning at 5.30 in the morning. <laughs> uh, I'm not a morning person. So it was really um, hard, but it was worth it. Because we would just talk. We would walk and talk. And many times, he would just know what I needed to hear. It was never just this general response. But he, he had this prayer. He said that he prayed um, before... Anybody he met with anybody, or asked he was meeting with him, and he said, Lord, help me just to see their uniqueness. Help me relate to that, and to love that, as you've made them in that uniqueness. And it was apparent that he was hearing that answer on a regular basis. And uh, he corrected, too, and he challenged at times when it was necessary, but, but he was so for me, it wasn't so bad. <laughs> it wasn't so scary when he did that. And I came to realize that really, a lot of the time what I was hearing from him was I was hearing Jesus speak through him with a, a James Houston accent.
2: Which
3: is a cool
1: Scottish accent. <laughs> um, but yeah, meeting someone like this or hearing about someone like this can be inspiring on the one hand as it should, but again overwhelming and maybe discouraging because man, I'm not like that. I don't think I could ever be like that and maybe not maybe not to that degree but then it's good to remember you know he's just a a guy a human like one of us and this ability for Jesus to speak with him and listen with him and through him didn't happen overnight he spent decades of his life practicing this and he said he was a slow learner and that was good for me to know (laughs) because I'm a slow learner too and uh, that's something we, we have to practice, that we're going to mess up, screw up, but know that God forgives and helps us to do better next time because He is the shelter, our shelter, who, who helps us make this space between us a shelter for conversation that the world is hungry for. That's all I have prepared, Thank you. So this is a time to hear back from you. If there's something I said that was unclear, or you have a question about, or you want to challenge, this is when we do open ourselves to challenge. We are not, um, you know, all-knowing people. (laughs) We have uh, blind spots, just like everybody. So we're going to be open in this, but I'd love to hear from you too. For me, one of my favorite parts of this kind of time is when I hear from you and from your experiences in this, what has helped you? What is what is it that you have found hard? What is it that you have found helpful um,
3: your own stories? This is going
4: to throw uh, out there. I've been to two different uh, library campuses. I found that um, while it is kind of in some ways a good kind of isolation where you're not... You know, in a place or your job or your, you know, sort of, the stuff you deal with in real, real life. Yeah. many <laughs> of But, at the same time, those, those lifetime conversations those dinner conversations, they're not without, they're, it's not like there are no stakes. Like, you're still going to, after that meal, you're still going to be um, living with all the people at that table. Yeah. Uh, and you're going to have to go into chores and you're going to have to in other um, all different kinds of settings even if it's just sharing uh, a you know a going story really yeah. you have to so and therefore more than there is this very real realization every morning at practice, so like with any sense of conflict you know like it you have to either invest in that or like pretend it's not there <laughs> for a while so there's Know, it's because it's out um, on, it's there and yeah. you feel it and you know they're looking at each other in the face or not every morning and every lunch and every <laughs> dinner and every <laughs> dishwasher. Mm-hmm. and that I think is, is uh, a huge part of the relational conversational uh, value of, of that of the communal living experience yes yeah. so figuring out how and when and what's at stake with the, with the conversation
1: hmm that's, yeah, well said. Yeah, that's, uh, I think, yeah, a lot of people come to LeBrie with a, a, a desire for community and conversation, but a romantic idea, and that oh, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. if you just live together, community happens, and it's great. And... No. <laughs> no, and it's usually, you know, a, a week or two in that's where the real issues start to come up and the real difficulties with relating to people, and that's, that's part of it. It's, it, but it's hanging in there and not, not bailing when that starts to happen but working through that and then the rewards really start to come too it, in hanging in there but that's hard work. you're right because it, it's different to have a meal with somebody and then you go your own ways and well you don't have to relate to them and, and have a relationship with them and
4: I, I think it's a little hard to to carry that on to you because that's why like when you said like, somebody, you, you just don't have time and it's not just that we have busy lives it's that it's you're not living with everyone yeah. that you are in conflict with in real life. You're yeah. not going to have those like,
1: downtime moments You're right. where you have to stay so it's easy to kind of put it on the back burner, even with the church. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We're the age of mobility. We're just. And so, yeah, to to just make time for each other and to live with each other to some degree, you have to be super intentional. And even that's just going to be very limited compared to other contexts like LaBrie. One, two, we've got a lot. Maybe to, honest, uh, to that, um, there's a piece
5: that inside of LaBrie, i English for a um, term. There's a piece that, because you're there in a much more holistic sense, you're interacting with people in multiple settings. And in some ways, it's the most simplest one, you know, when you're watching you standing up and doing chores. That allow you to at least appreciate, even if you disagree or have tension in one area, you can at least appreciate that. Like, it's like, they did their shift. Like, like, that's helpful. I, I mean, just as a, throw out an example but if there was
2: a person that I had told most
5: times, the personality. person I said, she made the best apple sauce. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Exactly. Yeah. That's. Uh, I mean, surely we need to limit our online time and <laughs> that practice of, of conversing with people um, online. And Sherry Turkle gets into this in her book: how the more we communicate online, the less empathy we have for each other. It goes way down. But that it really it returns quite quickly when we live with or when we just hang out with people. So there's these camps, these digital detox camps, which kind of Libri is like. And, uh, and she realized that, or they found, that empathy went way up quite quickly, just from a little time together, you know, like finding about a food you like or something together, you know. And it's just that face-to-face time is so important for empathy. And, uh, but to make room for that, I, I don't have all the answers. It, I think you need to, we need to learn and rethink what it means to make decisions about our future and what jobs we'll take and where we'll live and how we'll live. And to not, to not just think, well, I'm going to go take this job because it's, it's great for my vocation, but how are my relationships going to play out here? What's my church life going to play out as? Am I going to be super fragmented? And so I know, know I hear more and more stories of people saying, well, my biggest decision factor is my relationships. And so my career is important, but I'm not making that the number one thing. And uh, we had one guy at Labrie who, he was just a guy who heard something and acted on it immediately. And so he was at a a Southboro lecture, and he heard something about this very thing. He's like, well, why don't people make decisions to move somewhere based on friendship? And so he heard that, and he was living over in Chicago with no friends, and he decided to move to Boston, because that's where all his friends were. I mean, like, within the month. It was, uh, it was impressive, but, but maybe we need to think and, and be more risky like that, you know? you know, 20 years down the road, what are we going to care more about? That we had a really successful career or that we've had a lot of rich relationships that we've invested in and that we lived closer to, that we could actually live life with more? We ha- those are harder decisions and harder things to work through, but I, yeah, that's what's before us, I think. We've got one here and there. So...
5: Well, one thing I quickly say before my actual comment is that I learned the hard way at Lagree
2: that the one question
5: you do not ask of other people is so what can we do to Legree? <laughs> <laughs> so I guess it's really awkward because oftentimes people come from meetings, they don't want to no. tell you within the first five minutes. Yeah. Because you know what I mean, you realize no, this is there's a lot
2: more
5: going on, the Yeah there's some funny stories but Yeah. yeah. Well, but I was I love that about you were talking about Princess Shaper, the 55-minute, and the five-minute also James Houston, and it makes me think of um, uh, the end of um, Twenty Have Faces, mm-hmm. um, where a rule, you know, is, is reading her story out loud to the gods who like made this face hurt, which is scary, but. And then she realized at the end, you know, I've been looking for the answer, but I realized, Lord, you were the answer. But she only realized that when there was space created for her to share her story. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know, that clicked in my head. Like, if we are to be acting, you know, imitating Christ, you know, making space for another story. I'm just thinking about the gift of when you make space for somebody to tell your story, oftentimes the 55 minutes. Maybe so much is being revealed to them in the speaking of it and just that someone is there to care and listen and we don't yeah. have to say that I'm saying yeah. all this, it's not like I do it very well. Yeah. But I just that so me yeah. how because I think Lewis is dealing with, you know, the different types of love. So yeah. What is their love? Um, and rules has really false, perverse bizarre and you have love throughout. Yeah. And then at the end. So I don't and I wonder if um, how do you pronounce the philosopher?
1: The Jean-Louis yeah. Christian, Yeah. My French is
5: terrible. I wonder if he speaks to that at all. Like, um, I'm just very curious about it. You know, I wonder if he speaks about um, you know, creating a space for someone else to share their story, how it transforms them. Can
2: you talk about that at
1: all? Yeah, yeah. he talks about how that, that kind of
2: mm-hmm.
1: listening and conversation is just so invigorating. just brings something out of you, puts life in your veins kind of deal, yeah, he definitely talks about that, um, and talks about listening to what the other person has heard, and so it's true listening to somebody is trying to listen to what they have seen and what they have heard, and that's true listening, um, not just listening to them, but also with them to what they're hearing and seeing, um. A, yeah, a real discipline and a focus. But, mm-hmm. but on the Till We Have Faces, um, my mentor James Houston was prayer partners with C.S. Lewis, and he asked him one day, what um, he asked him, what was the most important book you think you wrote? And he said, well, maybe The Abolition of Man, but he said, nope, Till We Have Faces. It's the least understood, yeah. but I think it's my most important book. Yeah.
2: I awesome. yeah. I uh,
1: yeah. For me, it's that and. A great divorce, oh, yeah. so it's my favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, back here, and then back there, we got, oh wow, a few great. <laughs> uh,
4: so, I'm asking this question for you as uh, a worker and leader, and I agree in the context, like a lot of this conversa- conversation without having conversations, I see how that, that dynamic plays out in a one on one situation, the 55 minutes, five minutes. How do you Create that kind of space, even like for an example at a lunch table, of a place to be able to, where you are trying to cultivate a conversation where it's not just one something but with a space to be challenged. What can you give Just status in the world suit so of the one who's trying to help shape that conversation and create that shelter? Can you, or if I need to come to the for a month, I'm <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, I think they're the, one of the hardest elements of LaBrie for a lot of people. I mean, for a lot of people, just to get the courage to say something, to, to enter the conversation, to express what they're thinking and feeling, that is a step. And to acknowledge that everybody's at a different place, and, and to see that and be like, hey, good for you. you. That was courageous. I could tell. That took a lot for you to do that. You know, so for me, to affirm people... in in the little things, the movements they're making. But I do try to lay uh, ground rules before a discussion, a meal discussion, because it's easier to do that than to correct or try to change things along the way. But without giving too many rules, you don't want to burden people with this, you know, here's a hundred things you need to think about. But I do try to say, this is not like you ask a question and I'm the answer person, but this is a discussion. And we're going to hear from as many people as possible. And so the goal here is to both practice sharing and listening and tracking with a conversation, which is not what a lot of people are used to. And, and to kind of come back to those things, too. And it's easier when there's people who are staying with you for a while and you can revisit those things. It's harder if you're just having a one-off and uh, it gets messy. But I think it's also just acknowledging it's going to be messy no matter what, and it's to have to expect and force um, a tidy beginning, middle and end, it's not helpful. <laughs> but to really anticipate a true conversation is never something you control. You might promote, you might offer a certain atmosphere, but if you're really having an honest conversation, you don't know what the other person is going to say, and you shouldn't. And and there should be an element of surprise, which is tricky but also fun and makes it enjoyable, I think. There's a whole lot more to say, yeah, but uh, that's a brief. we got back here and then we've got several over here.
2: Just a recommendation two books the of grocery of the secret Box of an unlikely convert and then the follow-up of... Um, the gospel comes with housekeeping, practicing the radically ordinary hospitality. Um, for me, it has been wonderfully challenging, instructive, encouraging. How people example this towards her, and then the fruit that came out of that, and her of that elsewhere. I highly recommend it. Right
1: yes, I've heard similar things. And yeah, it reminds me of the illustration Edith always had, I don't know if this is very similar to her book, I haven't read the one you mentioned, the second one, but Edith said, a door for hospitality has both a hinge and a lock, <laughs> so you've got to know when the door is open and when it's time to lock the door, especially if you have a family, um, to protect your children, especially, to give them time and space to, to be just with you. Um, and So that we found that really hard and tricky, but we've learned from delivery workers. We've got a few over here that will come back to you.
2: Yeah. Um, uh,
5: so I work in a Catholic worker house and we serve women who, many of them, have aged out of foster care. And one of the things that we have found uh, were long-term relationships with them in a housing building and. Um, with these women in particular, they have a lot of like lack of experience with like limit testing and like um, difficulty in conversation. So it's a lot of like limit testing, do you love me now? Do you still love me? If I do this will you love me? And um, anyway, it's just been a really it's been a deep learning for us to how to like navigate through that and teach some skills and like we do want you to be safe. Here are these limits, and I was just wondering if you had any suggestions for engaging in this like really like limit testing behavior yeah. um, without emotionally getting like getting into those waves of their emotions. So like, how do you listen uniquely without getting like sucked under snow, um, in like the tide in, in the like current of their like limit testing anger? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, well, it sounds like, yeah, maybe some of what you do is is maybe more extreme than than what we've done, although we do have extreme um, reactions from people. I mean, I think sometimes it's it's to recognize, is this a time for a conversation, or is this a time to do something else? And and maybe let's just go for a walk, or let's go do something... um, that's not a conversation, because they're not in a place to listen, and I have no idea what to say. <laughs> Maybe they just need to know I'm for them, and we're just going to walk together for a little while. Um, and so I, I find that it's helpful. And yeah, I mean, try to try to enter into what, where is this coming from? Are they, is this just a test to see if I love them, or not, you know, they wanting to know if I'm for them, and so I, are they trying to see if I'm going to be shocked, or... I'm going to react with anger, and if I'm a safe person, and, and they're maybe not so safe at that moment, and want to see how you respond, and so that, uh, that's tricky, I mean, yeah, those are, those are hard things, I don't know if there's any one thing, but I do think there are boundaries, and there are times when we do say to people, this is inappropriate, this, this can't happen, if, if you want to stay here, especially in community, you know, it's, it's different if it's just you and one other person, but when other people are involved, we have to say, this is a shelter not just for you, but for other people. And so we have had very rare occasions when we've had to ask people to leave even the brief because of how they were super aggressive towards people. Um, I mean, we don't permit any sexual um, predators, in a sense. You know, that, that is not, like, you make clear that's not allowed. That kind of stuff. So, um, Or there's just this one guy who was just, blowing up at people. And he was not there to listen. He was not there to learn. That was not why he was there. And so we had to this really hard point where we were like, look, well, I think what you want is not what we can offer you. And uh, that was a that tricky time. But, um, but to realize there are boundaries. We are God. So we, we do have boundaries. We need boundaries for ourselves and for our families and the communities in which we work. And I think it's also helpful for other people to learn boundaries, because sometimes those very people have never had boundaries right. and don't know the freedom mm-hmm. that can come with that. And and you can see an initial reaction sometimes, and then a kind of like settling oh, in safety, you know, some of those ground rules. But
2: yeah.
5: <laughs> uh, so in marriage, people are both the spouses are usually at a different place when it comes to embracing this idea of openness and. Um, how do we use our home to create hospitality? I mean, it just maybe fortunately they are on the same journey, and other times they're at
4: different places of that journey. And, um, you know, my question would be, what are some ways to gently encourage or
5: nurture this mentality and this theology of creating a safe place, safe place for others in your, in your marriage in your home? What are some ways to to help others realize that, or to help your spouse like get on the same page, or embrace this without um, harming or challenging like the safety of
2: your marriage? Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. I mean, I think that that's a that's a really well put. That's a good question. And of course, yeah, I would, I would want to affirm your your priority is your spouse, and mm-hmm. um, and so. To talk through that as much as possible and to ask, well, what are, put our desires out on the table and put our fears out on the table. And usually those go together. What we're afraid of highlights what we desire, what we're afraid of losing or not getting. And, and then to, to put those on the table and think, well, how can we work what we both want and desire into a, a new, maybe common goal that's maybe even greater than each of ours by themselves? And that's hard work and that's difficult. And we need patience for each other to know how to even articulate that. Because I don't think even we know how to articulate what we're afraid of and what we're hoping for. Um, But to think creatively together, all right, how can we practice hospitality? Um, But of course, I think you have to be on the the same page as far as the vision of Jesus and the kingdom and what the place of hospitality is in that. So something like... um, Christine Poles. It's called Practicing Hospitality. Does anybody know this book? It's a great book. It takes basically it's a a bit of a history of hospitality in the Christian tradition and in the New Testament and how it's being practiced in some communities today. Libri even mentioned in there. Larsh, if you know Larsh, um, other communities. So I think Getting a vision for it is, is, is the bigger thing because we like was saying we're we're drawn by desire. So if we don't have a desire for it, it's going to be it's going to be pushing and there's going to be resistance. But if something catches catches our heart, that's a
3: different story. Back there, my question has to do with um, the virtues that we use as mechanisms to get us to places where we want to go, like hospitality. Uh, listening more than you speak. It seems like we've updated ancient or classical virtues like compassion has become empathy, uh, which is a different conversation. Yeah. Uh, I think the question that I have, rather than that, I mean, Sherry Turkle I think talks about it, I haven't read the book, so I don't want to to assume. But what underlies the the virtue, like you started with a poet, I think it's significant that Chrétien's vocation is to resist dead forms of speech. I mean, he can't use cliche and give up. Right, so cliche language, dead language, sentimental language is not true. Listening or speaking kind of of shuts off the possibility for both. But what I'm wondering is then, what's the virtue to get someone there, what's the character formation to allow for that type of resistance to dead speech? It's easy to say. Okay, well then, you know, it's important to be original. That's important to be which original. Oh yeah, to be you know to, to never uh, to never use cliche, but to always try to be original and not boring. And I think that's the wrong yeah <laughs> the
1: yeah yeah you're right I think. Yeah, there can be a false pressure to be always original. Um, but I think the virtue, I would say, one of the bigger ones, is just patience. So giving people the space to stumble. Maybe all they have is a cliché, and they're, they're grasping what they can, but you're listening to them, and you're seeing how they're saying that cliché, and it doesn't maybe always sound like a cliché, you know, depending on what's coming out, um, what's happening with their body language. But then giving them a little more time and awkward stammerings and silences to actually maybe stay a little more, because people are used to people not giving them the time. (laughs) It's like, I got to go, you know, make this quick. Mm -hmm. And so I think to slow down, which again is really hard in our day, Mm -hmm. and to give people that sense, okay, I'm going to give you some time, I'm not running somewhere. I'm gonna put my phone somewhere, my watch away, and I'm just here for you.
3: And go for it. You know, these people on their own will then unschool some of those cliches that maybe they've adopted in order to pack a lot into a little bit of time. Just, just so someone will hear it. Is that what you're saying? That time pressure is.
1: I mean, I think that's one. I yeah. think there's. There's probably a hundred other factors. Yeah. But to give people those spaces, one of the things that Anna does, my wife at Labrie, is she does these poetry workshops. But she doesn't do them just for like, serious poets, of course, if you are a serious poet, you can come too, but for everybody. And tries to make poetry not some like, obscure thing for, uh, for these certain class of people, but anybody can. And so she would just get these prompts for people to write about different things, some funny things, maybe something more serious. And she found, wow, it was really profound for a lot of people. And the things that people came up with, they weren't cliches. Mm-hmm. There was a lot more resources and people to express themselves than they realized. Mm-hmm. Um, but that there was just this space that, yeah, you can do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I found that, you know, there's probably other creative ways to, to help people to get these things out. Um, but I, I do think, yeah, they need to know... There's not a stopwatch going. And it's usually what we, the impression we give people. If there's one, that it's in our eyes. We're we're darting. We're looking for the next interesting person to talk to. If that was it. One, yeah. Uh, going back to what you said about protecting
5: your family, I feel like my husband does a really great job of saying that the doors City to be now and, and governing our, our time, our Even this morning, I made a proposal. Really, the hospitality I came. And he said, I think that's going to be too much for our family. Why don't we keep doing what we're doing? And I said, "Oh, thank not you actually appreciate that. Um, so let's just talk about the space. We are showing hospitality. Say we have a handful of hours. And we have a house with small children, a lot of them. Yeah. So how do we, you know, we've tried different things. We will invite people at a time, where the kids will go to bed and we have space. And then we say, no, 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 we don't want them to think that's what our home is like. Our home is messy and crazy and constantly interrupted so we know invite like them early in the, in the afternoon so they can see with that like. and then there's, you know, conversations really difficult and there's like, you can't, you know, little ones can't be in here because of the sensitive stuff these people are talking about and there's discretion and I don't know, like, just give, help navigate, even if just to say like, it's okay, I won't always be like that. But like, what are some tools that you can pass off our kids with three to ten? And I also want them to learn this as well. Watch it saying, oh, yes.
1: Yeah, I could talk for an hour. It's <laughs> something, yeah, we, we navigate all the time, all the families at LaVries, and, yeah, we've heard, yeah, things that people have done well and not so well. I mean, the biggest thing being an ongoing conversation with every member of the family and realizing everybody's at a different place, and even our kids. So we have two boys who are 12 and 14, and one Loves Labrieve, loves the mix, loves the more the merrier. He just you know jumps into anything he can. And the other one, no, no, no. <laughs> Once in a while, he likes to dip his foot in. And, and so trying to honor both of those, um, of both of her boys, and, and paying attention to that and talking through them, hey, this is a meal, we're going to have everybody over, so just know that's coming, and here's what you can think. But you know, if you come to a point where you need to go, you can just go to your room and be by yourself, and there's nothing wrong with that. This is our work, you know, this is not your work, even though you're part of our family. Um, And even for one who likes to be in the mix, we need to tell him when it's, you know, (laughs) time to pull away. But we constantly, too, talk with each other about, you know, we're not always on the same page. And sometimes one of us wants to do more, another less, and then that can switch for both of us. And so we actually, in our place, have two places we can eat. There's a a dining room in our room, but then there's a common dining room in La And so there's times when we have intense conversations. We don't have that with our boys. Their rooms are right next to our dining room, so we don't do that. It's not appropriate for them. And so those meals we have somewhere else. But when it comes, like you said, people. One of the most important things we've realized for people coming to LeBrie was that it gave them hope that there can be a real marriage and a real family. And, yeah. There's just a lot of people who have broken families and uh, they've given up. And they're like, uh, I'm, I'm giving up on marriage, I've given up on raising kids. It's too tragic it's too dark and, uh, and people come in and say this this is why I'm glad I came to Libri. I can see not that we're perfect we we have mess and we and we can fight with each other at times and we make up but but you can have a godly marriage and a godly family that's what I think some people need to see more than anything else and but we have to protect it like we don't want to just be like here's my family on display and um, but to know when it's time to invite people into that and to know when it's time to say it's too much, our family this is too much for our family right now, we need a break. Um, so I guess I feel everything that you're saying and I think and um, I think, yeah, it sounds like you're doing wise things, we're talking with each other and it's like can keep. Do you, do you, do you, there people a lot
2: of people we have or
5: people are people or young just to say, conversation because I'm thinking about this idea of creating a safe place. And it's really frustrating when the three-year-old is like constantly having it. you know. And so, if like, you just say, like we'd love to have you, you know come and join our family. There's gonna be a lot of interruptions, and you're gonna
2: have
1: our attention. It's gonna look different like than what what it might look like in your house, and talking. Yeah. Sometimes you say that. Sometimes you don't. I mean, it's
5: it's going to be frustrating for you. Yep. Anyway. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if so we can if we can prep people as much as possible, what to expect and what not to expect, um, I think that's key. Yeah, expectations are are really really important to, get, to lay out on the table as you can, but you can't always you can't always say that with everybody and every and cover everything. But but the more you can, the better I think. Yeah. Was there one more or maybe two more? Yeah. Then we'll
5: or speech and um, how would you say you so make a distinction maybe it is your block of you know you want to be a shelter for people who are like the not um but also point them to Jesus the ark and how does the Holy Spirit point to
2: that that you've seen or you know, that's kind of
1: much yeah that's that is hard. Um And that's something we try to do and say all the time, (laughs) but it doesn't always click. It's not always heard. Um, And so, yeah, you have some people like, oh, it's all about Labrie, and it's just this magical place. It's not, it's got problems, you know, it's not always easy. But it's to say, well, you know, the way, the reason it is why it is, is because of who we're in relationship with, who we're drawing from, who we're taking our cue from. Uh, So we do try to to point that out to people, but it's... uh, it's not always heard, um, and if, or it takes time to hear. So some people, that's, they just, that's all they're ready for, is just a taste of the kingdom. And that's what we try to do, is give them a taste, but then to say, this is the kingdom. It's kind of like, you know, Jesus would go around and he would say, the kingdom of God has come amongst you, and he, but he was demonstrating it to some degree. He was, well, not to some degree, he was healing people and casting out demons and, and doing all kinds of stuff as an example. saying, the kingdom has come near." And I think we all need to have that, whether we're in a church or... This is an expression of the kingdom. Um, It's it's drawing near in this practice, even if it's not perfect. Uh, But If we just talk about the kingdom without some kind of expression, it's empty, and people understandably turn away. uh, It doesn't sound so good to me. (laughs) Um, But yeah, maybe one more. I was
5: just actually going to comment that I really appreciate your response. The ongoing conversation with every member of the family. I grew up in a family of nine um, middle child uh, missionary family overseas and I think if that had been in like like I grew up around and valued my parents' for having um, having that mindset but I was also individual and I couldn't go away. Um, and so I think just that along be like you're also you're also you. We you know that like you function differently like how does this affect you? Like do you need space Just asking the question would have been helpful. Yeah. I really appreciate that. I think that's the same, like, obviously, too, between spouses as well. Yeah. Um, Like, I wish that my dad could ask my mom, my mom
1: would have asked my dad. Just like, just ask. Just the act of asking, even if nothing can change, you can at least understand why we're doing what we're doing. Yeah. And that you're in (laughs) the picture. Yeah. 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 Oh, thanks for saying that. Yeah. There's, um,. There's something we talk about in our marriage, the secret plan.
2: So, <laughs>
1: usually if you're halfway through the day and somebody's really upset because someone didn't share the secret plan they had, but it's not happening at that moment. <laughs> so we have a practice of like, you know what, let's get the secret plan, not so secret, at the beginning of the day. Let's talk about what we both want and let's see how we can navigate these things and work together more. And, but not just with a spouse, but with kids because that's going on. And so we know, we don't want our kids to be in their 20s and 30s and, and really mad at us <laughs> being to work through all this crap. We want to talk with them now. And so we even have a practice too when we screw up. Like, we screwed up. Can you forgive me now? Like, let's work through this forgiveness now, not when you're in your 20s and 30s where it's going to be really hard to do. So this all works
2: through
4: conversations.
2: Yes.
1: Let's end there. Yes. Thank you. You guys have been really enjoyable. I really enjoyed this.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information and updates about future conferences, sign up at NashvilleLabrieConference.com. Special thanks to the Rabbit Room Podcast Network for their know-how and hosting of this podcast. You can find their podcast network at RabbitRoom.com. And a special thank you to my friend, Drew Miller, for providing the podcast music. You can find more about his upcoming albums, Desolation and Consolation, through his website, DrewMillerSongs.com.